Welcome to Australian Design Radio to provide Australia and the world with conversations and commentary on Australian design. I'm Flynn Tracy and I'm here with Matt Leach. How are you? Very well, thank you. It's my birthday week, which is fun. Happy birthday. Thank you. It's also slightly boring because my whole family have their birthdays in the same month. And I'm the last one. So by the time it gets to mine, everyone's a bit over birthday, a bit over cake, a bit over presents, which kind of suits me, to be honest, because I don't really like my birthday. I really like other people's birthdays. But anyway, how about you? Because Adobe Max is finished. And I spoke to you just after and you sounded awfully tired. Yeah, well, I mean, I worked through I worked through my birthday on Adobe Max. That was like huge. <laughs> I like <laughs> there's so much to talk about. It was just a huge project that kind of came out of nowhere and it was kind of all hands on deck sort of thing. So uh, a lot of people working on other projects including myself were just kind of full time on that for about for about 3 months. It was quite unexpected. Um but look, seems like it went pretty well. Got to work with a lot of cool people um who I adore. Um I guess my one shout out will probably be to the Christopher Doyle, Jane Duru, and Sarah Nguyen, uh, who's actually from Streamtime, our sponsor, um, did a fantastic talk. And that was just super fun because we they got to dress up all fancy <laughs> yeah. um, and, ha- and you know, we went to this like, you know, warehouse to shoot it. So it looked like super, super cool. And it was just a lot of fun, a really good conversation and really exciting to work together on what on what that would be and that's that's available um if you go to the adobe max website and check it out all free yeah it's well well worth seeing because it's um yeah it was really well done and you know i didn't get to watch as much as i hope but what i saw was really great it just felt really well organized and and well done it's not the same as being there but it was pretty damn close Mm. Hey, before we go any further, you mentioned Streamtime. We should thank them for their continued support they've partnered us for a long time now and they're such a great team to be involved in yeah, I noticed there's a new video up on their blog, um, which looks at some of the more advanced tips and tricks for using the software. Yeah, if you're a user already, there's some great keyboard shortcuts, hidden tricks, templates, all that kind of stuff. It'll make you a lot more efficient. We'll put a link in the show notes. It's about 30 minutes well, worth looking at. Hey, while we're here, slightly related, I've been working with Andy a bit from Never Not Creative and the Banksia Project to set up the growth rooms for the creative industry. Yeah, so what, what is that? What is the growth room? Yeah, so it's basically a safe space to talk about how you're feeling, the challenges you're facing professionally, but also mentally. They meet each month and Andy and I have been doing facilitator training with Banksia. So shout out to the Banksia crew, Jack Jones and James Ewan. They've been amazing. So yeah, if it sounds like something you'd be interested in, we should be going live with our first group, uh, the first group sign up pretty soon. The places are going to be limited, but there's more people who are training to be facilitators. So it's something that hopefully keeps on growing. It just feels like something that the industry needs at the moment. There's lots of uncertainty out there. So it's a place to sort of talk about how you're feeling and how you're managing things. Yeah, well, we can't have you know, too much of that sort of thing. So that's an awesome initiative. So good on everybody involved. Check it out. Um, I assume we'll leave some links in the show notes. So do check that out um, in the podcast app or, you know, if you check it out on Instagram or something like that. Um, But hey, so who did you speak to? Who do we have on this episode? So this episode, we connected with our Western cousins and spoke to Dan Agostino from the brand agency in Perth. I was joined by Prue Jones and we spoke a bit about Dan's backstory, uh, the studio, what's happening in Perth and looked really heavily into sort of Dan's ideas around the idea of designing for good. Yeah, I looked into some of the great case studies for their work. I really liked hearing the backstory behind the Hungry Puffs. Um, Such a great concept for like a really good cause. It so is. And Dan's a great person too, really open and determined to take the brief further and, and try and do lasting good. Shall we jump in? 
yeah, uh, before we do, we should mention that this was our first live stream as well. So yeah. if you want to watch three talking heads, because, you know, we don't have enough of that these days, um, talk to each <laughs> other on your screen. You can check it out on YouTube and also Facebook if that's your jam. Uh, watch our socials to see when the next one's going live. So, um, yeah, you can either choose to watch, get your ADR live, uh, jump in the comments and say hello, or, of course, everything we do will always be created into a podcast anyway. Yeah. The nice thing about watching live is you can actually ask questions while, while we're actually talking. So anything that comes up, we can try and slip it into the conversation. All right, let's go. Let's jump straight in because I, I want to, I've been obviously researching about you and your studio. And one of the things I noticed is after you started graphic design a couple of years afterwards, you actually went and did a degree in marketing. And I'm always interested in, it was a post, post-grad, wasn't it? I did, yeah. I um, did a post-grad of marketing. Uh, I think this is going back a little while ago. Thanks for that. But um, <laughs> I, I saw there was a bit of a shift happening and the whole digital world was really starting to, to, I guess, come into play. And so the plan was to head, not necessarily to head into a marketing space, but just to understand a little bit more about the marketing world. I think as designers, we tend to get taught a lot about design, but then it kind of stops there. And then when you get out into the real world, there's a bit of a disconnect between how we talk to clients or how clients talk to us. Yeah. And so I wanted to kind of upskill as much as I could in whatever I could. And so I thought a postgrad in marketing as not, you know, having studied long enough, I thought, well, I'll just go back to uni and do a few more years of study. And so I just started chipping away at it. I will be honest and say that I never finished it. So Oh, really? Right. <laughs> no, I got most of the way through. But to be honest with you, I actually stopped because most of the stuff that I was learning, and this is not a criticism of any of our tertiary institutions, but a lot of the stuff that I was learning, I was kind of already doing and practicing on a day-to-day basis. So I kind of thought that it wasn't 100% relevant, but it was good to go through the process anyway. And I think it's it's laid a good foundation, I think, to be able to talk to clients in that particular way. And I hate saying marketing speak, but, you know, it's very different to design speak. So um, it's something I would probably recommend some students do in some way, shape or form. I think I think everyone should do it. I'm always pushing people to go and do a business course or a marketing course after their kind of traditional graphic design course, just so they get that kind of side. Because every creative director always says to me, the thing they miss in the junior designers is they have no understanding of business, no understanding of, of what the client's going through. Would you agree with that, Prue? A hundred percent, and uh, yeah, it's it's always the junior, it's always the junior designers. They're very, very focused on their own um, career growth, but um, neglect that part of like, what am I giving back? You know, and and having that that business acumen, even if it's just you know, broad brush, is so valuable for any young designer. Um, that would be the advice I would actually give to young designers: is don't focus just on the the art side of it, if you like, but but think about the business side as well, because after all, this is going to be your entire career. That, like it's so true, you know, like I used to, whenever we used to have juniors come in here or new members start with, uh, with the team, one of the things I would always do is I would give them this stack of books to read and none of them were about design specifically, but it was all about things like strategy and, you know, I guess the greater world out there other than, like you said, Chris, just the artistic side, mm-hmm. which you can pick up way and that'll change over time as trends come and go and things like that. But if you have that understanding, that sort of foundation in there, it's not just about creating the work, but then how do you sell it in and how do you make it, you know, how do you make it work harder? 
Yeah, exactly. I've seen a lot of um, designers, you know, they started out visual, but they uh, they then become design strategists, you know, so yeah. that's, that's uh, yeah, encouraging that side of things really important. I, I like the idea of the kind of T-shaped learning as well because everyone's going to have that kind of visual communication, graphic design kind of commonality, but then, you know, what, what they choose to kind of branch out to, like you branched out to marketing, other people branch out into business, you know, I like that idea that, that you're going to end up with a whole bunch of designers who have got the core skills, but then they've got a, a particular interest that goes goes deeper in a different area. Yeah, I think, look, I, it also depends on what industry, I think, uh, or what market you're kind of working as a designer. I think in some, you can probably go into a niche a little bit more than others. I think in, in Perth, it's probably uh, what I've seen is that, you know, it's pretty good to sort of have more of a generalist kind of approach. And then, as you're saying, drill down into specific areas. Um, and, and it can be anything. But, you know, I've seen too many designers over the years just really drill down into one particular niche. Then what happens when, you know, markets change or economies change, as we're seeing recently, right? You know, mm. you have to be able to adapt and move into all these different spaces. Otherwise, you just kind of get, you know, you fall by the wayside and, and then what happens? We, we touched on it quickly before, but, like, what what's the what's COVID been like for Western Australia and Perth in particular? It's been, it's, I have to admit, it's been, it's been really interesting. It's, we're all pretty much back in the office now, so I think we're in a slightly different situation to um, a lot of other parts of the country. It was pretty full on for quite a while. I think any, anybody out there would agree with that. It was busy in so many different ways trying to manage schedules we saw so much work come out of the system but in the same breath the same amount of work was coming in so it was almost like a two-man job just trying to manage workflows yeah um you know there's uh, like everyone talks about how how hard the economy's been hit and things like that and we've kind of seen certain sectors drop off but we've, we've also seen other sectors drop up uh, drop up move up a mm. little bit i guess um, and get busier. And I think it's the one thing that kind of impressed me was the whole, I guess, the ability to work from home, um, which yeah. everyone has had the ability to do this. I mean, like, you know, we're, we're doing it now, right? But we've had this ability to do it, but no one's ever really taken it on board. And it kind of forced us into this situation and yeah. hate it. I think now everyone's starting to kind of enjoy it in some capacity. So we've still got people who are working from home a little bit. I've got one of my designers who has family in Adelaide and so just before the borders locked down in March she moved over back to Adelaide to be closer to her fiance uh, and she's still there now so what's that six seven eight months down the track and I'm happy for that you know like it means if you're a better worker if you're happier doing what you're doing in the environment that you're in then that's great we've still got border lockdowns over here so no one's really coming on going and we're not going anywhere fast but um yeah, it's it's be interesting to see how it plays out in the next few months, or you know, particularly next year. I think we'll see a lot of the side effects. Um, how do you keep up those design rituals when you've got remote designers? Like, what, what do you find really works for your for your people? I'm, try, I'm um, trying to get some intel here. No, I'm just. <laughs> <laughs> what what worked for me was trying to keep things business as usual. So every, and that sounds really ironic because I know we're thrust into this kind of world where everything was so different, right? But every morning we have a team huddle. And so the one thing that we were trying to do was keep that up every single day. And we did, and we still do it now. And we still do, you know, people tune in, uh, whether it's through Microsoft Teams or, you know, if they're in the office, we still maintain that communication. 
it just comes down to communication, doesn't it? Like the more that you talk to people, the more that I think you can get your way through it, right? And the more that you sort of, what I found is that the more I leave people to their vices is maybe that's the more that they start to, you know, you see the wheels start to spinning or all of a sudden they go down into these kind of places where they don't necessarily should be. So I've just been trying to talk to everyone as much as possible, always video chats just so you can, you know, gauge reactions, see what they're like, talk about what's happening in the backgrounds and things like that. So I've I've actually found it harder now that some of the team are in the office again and some aren't because it, it definitely feels like when I'm 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 never in the office because I'm always working remotely but the um I definitely feel like there's conversations going on now which I was a part of a month ago but now there's like conversations happening in the hallways and all, all that kind of stuff like it used to um, but now I feel very out of it because it's because it, you know there's not that kind of regular I guess way to kind of keep in touch. I think we found it a bit the same. It's like you're either all in or you're all out. Yeah. Yeah. When, when you got that sort of half and half thing, I think is when you miss out on all these little, I don't know, I think that's part of the design process or the creative process. It's those little, uh, we call it the bump factor, like when you sort of walk in and you accidentally bump, to, bump into someone in the hallway yeah. or in the kitchen and you have a conversation, that's when some of the magic happens. It's not always when you're sitting behind your desk nine to five. Mm. So the more that you sort of encourage that, better it is as you, i'm sure you're aware but um yeah when you're out of the office and you're out of that environment it's kind of you know you just try and keep that momentum going i guess so you've been at the brand agency for over 13 years now and we should point out that you were number like number one agency uh, according to the campaign brief now 13 years compared to the kind of national average is a pretty long time so yeah. I, I was going to ask how how do you keep it interesting how do you keep it fresh Oh, do you know what? Actually, I don't know if I know an answer to that. Uh, yeah, 13, 13 and a half years, actually, to be honest with you. Well and truly part of the furniture. I think, I don't know, you need to have a love for it. You need to enjoy it. You need to enjoy the people that you're working with all the time. I really enjoy the people that I work with, and they'll probably be listening. So, um, <laughs> yeah, I love them. The only time they're ever going to hear me say that, right? But um, <laughs> No, I, I think it's you just got to find ways to keep it interesting for you, right? And I guess we're kind of lucky again in that sort of creative world where, you know, we're not accountants, you know, we're not doing the same formulas day in, day, day, in, day out. So you got to make it interesting and you have to make it fun. There's a lot of banter that goes on. There's a lot of laughter and things like that. And I think the more that you, that you instill that into your workplace or into your team environment, the more they'll thrive, the more they'll enjoy working within that space as well. Yeah. So, and for me, that's, I think that's what it's about. Not that I'm always coming to work and have fun, but you need to have fun in what you do. Mm. Yeah, that, that culture aspect is such a huge thing and everybody talks about it, right? It's always like culture, culture, culture. How would you engineer a great culture? Like it sounds like you have, like what do you think are the working parts that make that up? Wow, that's a big question. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if there's a design formula for it. Um, how do you engineer it? I guess... I actually don't know if I have an answer for that. I don't know. What do you What do you guys do? Well, I, having having look at the the website and, and kind of like talking to some people who, who know the brand agency well, um, it seems like you've got some pretty amazing initiatives. Like you know, you can bring your kids to work. It's free brekkie for everyone. You yeah. get five five weeks instead of four weeks. You get um, like every year you get an additional day off. You get your birthday off. And then, like, I just found out before that you, um, you even give life insurance to your employees. And, and <laughs> so, I mean, like, the, some of those things, like, they, you know, they, they seem barely obvious, but having them all together, that seems like a pretty amazing incentive. 
for, for everyone that's working there. You know, I think one of the reasons why, like you've got to think as well, like how often do we spend in our office environment nowadays and, you know, how particularly when, again, you're in this creative world and it doesn't just switch itself on and off, right? It's not a nine-to-five thing. So people are here for longer periods of time and um, and that's not a, a good thing or a bad thing, but when you want people to be here, when you want them to be here, you want them to be actively wanting to be here, not because they're forced to be here, right? So the little perks along the way are, are, are great. I mean, I think you look at places like, I don't know, like Silicon Valley and stuff like that, and they're just like, you know, showering everyone. Like Google gives you free meals for yeah. lunch and dinner. And um, yeah, and you know what? Yeah, we do. We do all of that stuff, and I think it's great. Um, and a lot of people take advantage of it. I probably need to take more advantage of it. But um, <laughs> free breakfast. Uh, but yeah, no, it's good. My son loves coming in here. I bring him in uh, on school holidays and things like that. He hasn't been in for a while because of COVID, but um, absolutely loves it. I can't I get Oh, yeah, I get the comment about the Silicon Valley. But I, I always look at some of that stuff with, I guess, a glass half empty kind of idea because it, it feels like, yes, they're giving them dinner and everything, but that's just to keep them working. Keep them working <laughs> right, right. That was going to be the point that I made that I think I asked you a bit of a, a trick question there, Dan, because, um, every, you know, I think I, I firmly believe in my experience that great culture flows from great work. If your agency is doing incredible work, mm-hmm. everyone is there, they're vibing, they're happy, they're, you know, jumping out of bed every day to come into work. And I think that's a, a very nice segue into talking perhaps about some that's of the some work. Particularly <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> the stuff around design for good. You you articulated it a lot better than what I did, I'll be honest with you. So. <laughs> Lead us in, Prue, because uh, I, I know both me and Prue are quite interested in talking yeah. about Hungry, hungry Puffs. Yeah, okay so, okay, so I first saw that piece of work at the Agda Awards last year and thought it was absolute genius. Yeah. Then I saw it again in the Walk Awards just earlier this year and yeah. um, I don't know if I'm breaking any kind of code of ethics to talk about the judges' reaction in the, in the sort of, well, I was going to say in the room because it wasn't in the room, it was in a Zoom call because COVID. But um, it unanimously got so much love from all the judges internationally. That piece of work was, you know, and, and, and so interestingly, it was, it was literally, it was actually a piece of packaging, print, right? And it was in the um, effectiveness, the innovation effectiveness category, which was, you know, in itself, I think that's why I thought it was so innovative. But perhaps could you, out of out of your mouth, describe what that project was about and how you came up with that idea because I, I thought that was, was just genius. Well, thank you, first of all. Um, I need to caveat this by saying I didn't actually come up with the idea. I kind of wish I had, but um, it, was, <laughs> it was conceived by a couple of guys in our creative team, Matt and Hayden, who came up, I guess it came through as a brief, you know, coming into Christmas, it was for one of our charity, uh, I guess, one of our clients who works in the charity space in Food Bank. They had come from a point where they had to receive some uh, government cutbacks and things like that. And so they didn't Massive have ones, yeah. I mean, you know, it was really, you know, really well publicised. Um, and, you know, there was always that fear that coming into Christmas when every single charitable organisation is fighting for every single dollar, like it's so competitive that they, I think there was this recognition that they needed to do something a little bit different this year than the average fundraising drive or donation drive. And so it was quite, I guess it was one of those projects that what was really interesting to see from from my part 
was just the sheer, I guess, the love for the project. Like when it came into the agency and the idea was kind of conceived, I think we're all kind of bought into the room. There's a few of us bought into a room saying, right. And I remember our old creative director at the time, Marcus, was talking about it and was showing us the idea and said, look, you know, this is going to be big. And we hear that a lot, I think, in <laughs> sort of advertising circles. And you kind of think, oh, yeah, well, I have heard this before. But in the same breath, when we actually heard it, we're like, actually, this is actually really quite a good idea. And it's such mm. a simple idea that could actually then lead to have, I guess, bigger impact down the path, down the track anyway. Um, what was really interesting was just seeing how many people kind of threw effort behind it around the agency and it kind of grew and grew to a point where there were so many different teams being mobilized throughout that, you know, that campaign to bring this thing together. Um, you know, we're a, a hundred staff agency. So when you're mobilizing that many people to work across these these projects, it's a big job in itself. You know, so, uh, you know, there was a massive shout out to everyone who kind of was involved, but then the more people wanting to, who, who were working on it, the more people wanted to work on it as well. So um, it sort of grew beyond that. So basically, I guess the, the main sort of idea behind it came from this idea uh, around food insecurity. It's probably something that isn't spoken about a lot. It's kind of this hidden truth. And I, I don't know the exact stats, but there's actually a huge amount of people out there who basically don't know where the next meal is going to come from. And so bringing it down, I guess, into a West Australian level, and the thing that I guess stuck out for me was just the sheer amount of kids who will not have breakfast the next day. Um <laughs> So it was something like over 100,000 West Australian kids don't know where their next breakfast meal is going to come from. And so, and it's this huge number that, as I said, it's kind of this hidden truth that people don't know about, right? Yeah, massive numbers. Being, you know, I've got three young boys and putting that into context, I think, sort of shone a little bit of light for me as well. Um, yeah. So when it came in, I guess we all kind of bandied together. We knew it was a really good idea, but everyone just wanted to sort of um, create something even better. So we came up with the idea, uh, well, the agency came up with the idea of that box of nothing. It's the breakfast cereal of choice that over 100,000 West Australian kids get to have for breakfast every single year. Uh, sorry, every single morning, every single day. And um, that was it. The biggest challenge was not just how do you get it designed up and how do you get the campaign up and running, but then how do you then sell that into supermarkets? Coming into Christmas when not only is every charitable organization fighting for a dollar, but how do you get it onto a supermarket shelf when every single product is fighting for your attention at Christmas mm. time? So, you know, there's the, the Marty Newmeyer thing where you've got to zig when everyone else is zagging or is a zag when everyone else is zigging, right? So I guess we were just trying to break every single kind of rule in order to get it on the shelf, but then to have as much standout as possible. So, yes. Yeah, I think that's the thing that really stands out to me is just that because um, you see lots of good ideas and then it, they can't be kind of delivered well. And from all the pictures I've seen, um, they all seem to be like in prime shelf space as well sort of thing. Yeah. So it's like, you know, a box, an empty box essentially um, sitting in prime shelf space at, at that time of year. I mean, how did you get that through firstly with the supermarkets? Because I guess are they getting anything from it? Well, they, I think a lot of phone calls and a lot of favours and a lot of, you know, just pushing the issue. It was one of those things when it first started, it went into um, like a handful of IGA stores. Um, I think you've got IGAs over, over East yes. as well. So it went into a handful of IGAs, but then I guess it's, this is that snowballing thing, you know, like when, when more people wanted to work on it, the more people wanted to get involved. And so people started asking, well, how do I get this in my store? And before you know it, when in the lead up to Christmas, I think we had uh, from a handful of stores, it went to over 40 stores within the first year. 
Um, it was then, I think, backed nationally, uh, sorry, uh, across the state. And in the second year, we had, I think, over 200 IGA stores wanting to pick it up and run with it. Um, and I think the more people that were involved in it, the more people started to ask for this product as well. You know, they might have seen it in one store and then they didn't see it in another. So I think the more the community got behind it and the more that we were also trying to drive it through social media mm. like that, the more it started to sort of perpetuate, I guess. I, I, I love the fact that it, you talked about products, but, you know, essentially it's not a product. It was just an empty box. And, and some of the video I saw was like people like buying a bunch of them and then just kind of leaving them at the store because they didn't, they didn't need the empty box. Yeah. Um, what, what, what is it about this particular, like this, I guess I was talking to Prue about it earlier, just this idea of like buying something physically kind of meant more to people then because it was, it'd be, it's so easy to kind of donate online, but yes. there were, but for some reason, this kind of really tapped in. Have you got any insights and in why why it works so well? I don't know exactly. I think people people like tangible things. They like to hold stuff. And I think nowadays, you know, maybe maybe it's kind of what I was saying before. Like so many people can just I don't know. You can access anything nowadays, and it's such a throwaway throwaway world that we're kind of in nowadays. Um, that by holding something and actually feeling something, you know, like you can sort of connect closer with it. So people would go, they'd pick up the box off the shelf in the IGA and they would go to the cash register and that effectively was their $5 donation to um, Food Bank WA. That $5, it was really quite obvious that that $5 was going to provide up to 10 meals for West Australian kids. You know, so I think it made it helped make these connections. It helped make made it just feel a little bit more real rather than asking for a specific dollar amount. Mm. Mm. There, there were two things in particular that I loved about it. You know, you think about charities and the nature of people, and sometimes you know, if if you if somebody approaches you and says, "Will you make a donation?" There could be so, so much other stuff going on. Perhaps you don't want to be approached that day or whatever. You're a terrible person and don't donate to charity or whatever. But um, you know. It really left the decision with the shopper to just, you know, to actually make that decision at the shelf edge there and put put it in their in their basket or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. But there was no pressure. The other thing that was genius, I thought, was the fact that it was black and white. And in that sort of really crowded breakfast cereal category where everything's screaming at you in full colour, it must have really stood out on shelves. Was that a conscious decision that that you made there? It was. It was a very conscious decision. Decision, sorry. And it's funny because we've spoken about this before. The whole black and white idea was something that, from a design perspective, um, we were. I guess I don't know. We were quite strong in that. Not just me, but some of the other designers who worked on it uh, as well. Janice Law, who worked on it, some of the illustrators, Soph as well. We were making sure that we wanted to be purposely different. And when there were comments saying it needs to be bigger, it needs to be bolder, it needs to be brighter. You know, if you look at the breakfast cereal aisle and what you're kind of up against, it's so big and bold and bright. And and I yeah. understand why. I completely get it. Um, you know, as a as a marketer, you're trying to do that. But I think you know, when everyone is big and bold and shouting yeah. for attention, then who's big and bold and shouting for attention, right? So we made it black and white to purely stand out to the crowd. Um, there was a lot of conversations around that issue, but I think that's the one thing that we're very, very happy that we kind of really mm. stood behind mm. as designers to say this is the way we, you know, think it should be moving forward. The um, it's it's such a great idea, and I know there were lots of people in New South Wales and um, Victoria and all across the eastern coast were talking about it, but it, there's nothing being done like that over here. Is is do you think there would be any plans to kind of do something across the nation? 
that I don't know. I can't answer mm. that. No, so I'm not sure. But um, I think it'll definitely be great. Be, be really amazing. The you talked about that snowball effect, and I kind of I wanted to bring up another project of yours. Um, this one's the active Armadale one. On on the face, from from what I can see from it, it looks like a fairly simple identity brief that you're given, and then it's turned into like turned into this massive movement that's kind of I guess focused everyone on being healthy, but also given like loads of pride to that local area. Yeah, can can yeah, you tell I, us a little bit more about it? This is this was like a real labor a labor of love, I guess, for a few of us again within the design team, within the strategy team. It, it came to us as. I, literally that, that it was uh, a brief to design a logo on the side of a building. Um, right. And it was a beautiful building. It was this architecturally designed fitness and aquatic centre uh, in the outer suburbs of Perth in a place called Armadale. Armadale does get a bit of a bad rap sometimes in the press. It's in the outer the sort of the fringe suburbs around the city. And so I think there's, you know, a lot of people draw these conclusions with unhealthy living or, you know, inactive right. lifestyle and things like that, you know, and as you drive down, to Armadale every time we would go and visit the client, I think one of the things we noticed was just the sheer amount of fast food outlets that were there along that drive selling you stuff, right? And it's just so, so prevalent. And we did a whole lot of community consultation work and we did a lot of um, strategic work just trying to ask the community what they wanted. And the one thing we noticed, uh, like you said before, was community pride. Everyone who lived there in that region loved living there and they were so proud that they built. And we kind of thought, well, why is nobody tapping into this? And, um, you know, how can we then deliver something? How do we deliver a brand that's going to actually speak to them in the way that they want to be spoken to? And to do so respectfully as well, you know, not just selling more stuff. And I think, you know, when you're looking at certain industries, and I think the the active lifestyle industry is no different. Everyone follows these conventions, right? Like it's always full of very healthy almost a little bit too photoshopped people and it was kind of like well, <laughs> let's talk to people who in a way that they want to be spoken to and so um we broke it down into these core demographics and um these core audiences and then we designed a way to kind of speak to them in that way uh we came up with this character set because there's a lot of characters that live out that way and so we came up with these this range of five characters that were based on those demographics it was really simple as that and then we basically we said to the to our client well this is a real opportunity to kind of, you know, I guess off the back of building this this um, uh, brand new state-of-the-art facility, let's kind of leverage that as this cornerstone for change. Let's try and shift the perception in, out there and try and use this as a way to try and, I guess, shift people's perceptions on what they think about Armadale. And so we use the building, as I said, as this way to impart change. It doesn't just have to be a sign on the side of the building. It can be a sign for change. So we created this platform, which was the Active Armadale platform, and basically every fitness initiative and every lifestyle initiative and, and everything within that space then fit under this one banner. It wasn't just about one logo on the side of a building. It was multiple logos on multiple buildings with multiple initiatives all talking to the community in the way that they wanted to be spoken to. And done in a way that is so very different to every other lifestyle fitness mm campaign you know we didn't want to have any ripped bodies or anything like that we had every i'll say the every man but we drew the every man and we illustrated the every man as best we could so yeah led by the mascot ari armadale um and i can't remember the other names ari amy arlo i'll forget now but they all started with a and they're all based on just the simple character the letter a and the lowercase a for the kids which nobody ever knows but um, 
So, yeah, it was great. Um, one of our designers, Carly Groves, she really led that. She drew every character. She, as I mentioned before, it was a labor of love and she threw herself into that project. We animated it, we illustrated it, we did absolutely everything to a point where they, the client themselves, really took it on board and ran with it. And we were running sort of, you know, these collaboration sessions with them to make sure that when they picked up the brands, they could actually move forward with it, uh, move mm. forward with it. And, and they've done so, you know, and they've had massive results. Um, <laughs> I, I've, I've got a question around that because I'm just imagining the scenario where the, the clients ask for a, a logo on the, on the side of the building, but then you've come back with it like this, oh, it could be this massive thing. How do you how, how do you get that through with them? Obviously, collaboration you kind of mentioned, which is obviously a big one, but also pricing-wise as well because I, I can imagine the, uh, the price difference between just a logo on the side of a building and, and what actually eventuated is going to be quite dramatically different. Um, yeah. Probably. I won't go into pricing, but um, the, the biggest thing that I noticed was that the early, and we do this a lot with our clients, is that the earlier you get them involved in a process, in a yeah. project, in a design work, mm-hmm. the better the outcome is going to be, right? And I think long on are the days where we'll get a brief or something and we'll spend two, three weeks working on something in isolation and then you have that big ta-da moment, right? Yeah. And it's like, which option do you like, one, two or three? And because they haven't been part of that journey, they're probably not going to want to connect with it and they're probably going to make changes to it and it's going to change the design in some capacity. So one thing we do is get them involved really early in the piece and it can be anything and everyone can do this in their own different ways, right? But uh, And I'm sure they do. But, you know, you can do mood board sessions, you can have whatever, you know, tissue sessions, however you want to call them. And we did that with this particular client. And I remember being in the room with just really rough kind of examples of it could be this. It's definitely not this, but it could potentially be like that. Because they're involved in that decision-making process, they kind of knew what they were getting into and what to expect. Yeah. And, you know, we had, I can't remember exactly how many, but there was probably six or seven or eight client presentations along the way, all the way up to council members and things like that. But everybody knew what to expect. And I remember the conversations that were happening, and it was one of those kind of rare sort of moments where you get the tingling sensation of like, yeah, you know what, we're actually doing something really good here for a change. Yeah. And it was, it was mm. just really comforting to see when when you see clients so engaged in the design process like that, you know that you're going to come up with something um, semi-decent. I'll say semi-decent. Mm. After, right? yeah. But like, you, want, you know you're going to come up with something good because, you know, you're all kind of in it together, right? They're wanting the same goal as what you're wanting as well. So Yeah. Yeah, there's a yeah. There's two schools of thought around that at the moment, isn't there? It's really like um, when does involving the client as non-designers, but also SMEs on their business, right? When does involving them in the in the process? When do you end up with like design by committee? Because um, yeah, and I think I think it goes to the heart of what you're talking about. What you're really talking about there is trust, and the more that you can bring them on that journey, the kind of um, more trust you to make those decisions. It's an interesting one. So have you ever been in a situation where you've involved the client and have they have actually dictated the outcome to you? Because I, I find sometimes this is happening in, in designers and as on the whole. Yeah, okay. I think it's, you know, it's one of those things that, you know, everyone can be a designer, right? Everyone's got the tools and the skill sets. Uh, not skill sets, mm-hmm. but everyone's got the tools at their fingertips nowadays to, to put stuff together. There's some instances where it works better than others, for sure. And I think you need to have that level of trust with the client. And it does happen over time. We we don't work mm-hmm. in that way. We don't have that process for every single project that comes in the door. Um, we'll isolate right. I think, opportunities where that happens. And I think you know over time, where is it going to work and where is it not going to work? 
but it's definitely when it does work, it works great. It, it really works a treat. Yeah. Does, does it speak to your process a little bit as well? Because just looking through kind of the work you guys have done, it, it feels very much like, um, I guess, always kind of trying to push the brief a little bit further, I guess. And I guess it's not just a campaign, but it's almost like trying to solve the problem once and for all, which I, which I think we're all trying to do. But it seems like there's an extra step in your process that kind of is enabling you to kind of get down into that detail. I don't know if it's an extra step. I think it's probably a question that everyone should ask anyway, right? Like mm. when a brief comes in, it doesn't necessarily mean that the solution's there. I think the more that you, people see themselves as creative problem solvers rather than, oh, I'm an art director or I'm a designer, like, I mean, I guess, you know, go back 15 years ago or 20 years ago, the solution was always let's run a TV campaign, let's do an ad camp, a, a, a radio campaign or let's run a full-page press in the local paper. Right. And then the digital world came in. I hate saying that, but you know, when things turned digital, it was like, let's do a full page press, let's do a radio campaign and a TV campaign and a website. It's like, well, there's so many other things that you can do in the world to solve that problem. And therefore, but they're not the be all and end all, right? There's so many other ways that you can kind of approach any job. And I think that's what I love about designing now this is probably going to fall back to the question at the beginning about how do you put it stay fresh i like the idea that you can do anything nowadays right there's no right or wrong it's just what's going to be the most effective solution at the end of that design rainbow i think that, i think that also very much just relates to what we we're talking about with hungry puffs it's it's you know and why it was in effective innovation it's like you can there's more than one way to solve a problem and you know if anybody else had gotten that brief perhaps you know, they wouldn't have solved it so effectively because they would have gone to those more expected kind of, yeah, let's just make an, a, a website where people donate or whatever. Do you know what I mean? But that was, it was really innovative. Well, I'm glad that you noticed that. <laughs> um, I guess it's one thing that probably, you know, again, I don't think a lot of younger designers or younger creatives are maybe asking enough is, you know, how much can they challenge that brief and how much, mm -hmm. how far can they actually push it? You know, I think no one's ever going to complain if you, give them a solution to a problem that's different to what they've, you know, asked for. You know, no client's ever going to complain if yeah. you've actually answered the brief. It's just done in a slightly different way. Yeah. Mm. Can I can I just take you back to the studio as well? Looking at the website, one of the things I noticed was that um, when you go onto the landing page, you have Perth, Auckland and Melbourne, and you're forced to make a choice what, what you go and look at. Um that seems like a different way than most companies would do it where they would like, you know, we're all over the place. Why Why was the decision made to kind of separate out the studios into individual? We do. We work on different clients. Our Melbourne and our Auckland office predominantly working on Bunnings, which is one of our, obviously, is a large client. I think everybody knows. Perth, we do things a little bit different and we do have a wider client set um, here in uh, WA. Um, we still do work across that piece of business as well, but I think that's probably the main reason why. One of the things I noticed on the Perth side that wasn't on the others was Brand XP. Can you can you tell us a bit about what that is? Yeah, Brand XP. Well, hasn't had as much love, I guess, at the moment because of COVID. But um, the whole <laughs> brand experience thing is like, I guess it kind of like I, I've seen design change over many years, and it's kind of from our team's perspective, the one thing that we again don't like to do is just always deliver the same solution. 
And the more that we started working across branding projects, the more that we started seeing them sort of move into, you know, whether it be digital spaces or environmental spaces or um, interior spaces and things like that. The brand experience is no different. I think it becomes more of a, it's kind of putting the brand in more of a tactile space as well. So how do people engage with a brand? What's the feeling they get from uh, seeing a certain brand in the real world? I guess it's no different to like, you know, when someone picks up a newspaper and they read an ad for something, right? Like it then points them in the direction of a uh, website and they get hopefully the same the same tone of voice, they get the same feeling, they get the same personality of the brand, which then points them in the direction of where to go and what's the interior design space look like for it. You know, like yeah. it all sing harmoniously. So when people then interact with that brand on any level, what's the experience that they get? And so a lot of it comes down to how do you bring the brand out into the real world? And we've had a lot of fun delivering some really interesting brand executions in the real world space. Just, um, just listening to you talk about that. So, so is that different from brand activation? You know uh, no, I mean? it's brand activation world. I think right. people just call it different things, but essentially, yeah. It's, yeah, you activate a brand within a space that people are going yeah. to enjoy and engage with. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, I think about brand act- activation as you know more kind of once-off kind of thing, but the you know events where you get your brand out there. But what you're talking about really is that multi-layered kind of experience of a brand. You know, multiple touch points. Uh, multiple locations and that consistency. So are a lot of clients actually looking for that? So is it sort of becoming a bit of a consultative area within design? Just interesting. We've seen a lot of clients use it, um, obviously with a lot of restrictions put in place over the last few months. Uh, yes. Not as many, um, sadly. Hopefully that's one of the things that will change in time. But um, it's certainly, for me, it's one of the most exciting parts of where branding can go. You know, it's, and it's mm. actually nice to see people inter- physically interact with the brand, right? And then mm. you can actually gauge their reaction to it and what do they actually take out of it rather than, um, you know, you send a, whatever, you create a product and you send it out into the world and then you're kind of hoping that people are going to pick it up off a shelf or they engage with it in some way. Um, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Just pop the coin and see what happens. So we want to ask some questions around Perth because obviously on the East Coast, we, you know, it seems like there's lots of really exciting stuff happening over there. Yeah, it's always that thing though, isn't it? Like the Eastern States and people are like, Perth, like whatever happens over there, you are so literally so far away. But it's, but it, I don't know if this is like working really well for you because a lot of the creative stuff that comes out of WA is just phenomenal. Like it's really, I mean, there are so many amazing agencies over there and like you know block branding and all that I just like amazing creativity so what's the secret what's in the water over there I don't know I well first thank you um I think I don't know Perth has always had a bit of a complex I think maybe this isn't the right way to answer it but I think for so many years Perth has always felt like it needed to convince itself that it was better or as good as what's happening on the east coast right and we always I think from a design perspective, it's always been so centralised with Melbourne and Sydney and, you know, there's such great work coming out of there. And I think Perth people have always had this perception of like, well, I don't know, maybe stuff, you know, nothing's ever good enough. And I remember it got to a point where you would 
even go and order a coffee from a coffee shop down here somewhere in the city and you'd order a coffee, it'd be a good coffee and someone would always make the, the comment that oh, yeah, you get better coffee in Melbourne. Like, oh, you know, <laughs> yes. It's, it's a good coffee, right? And I think what's happened More over the years, I'm sure with design and coffee, but um, what I've found over the years is that I think it's maybe it's instilled this thing that, that I don't know, people just always want to get better and better. And I think nowadays like there's no... I don't know, Perth economy or Melbourne or whatever, right? It's like so global and it's such a throwaway thing to say. But like, you know, you get your inspiration from anywhere that's happening around the world. Go back 20 years ago, we were limited by whatever books we could find or, or whatever it might be, right? But now I think the bar has been raised. And this isn't just a Perth thing. I think this is just in general. I think the bar is just continually being raised higher and higher and higher. So mm-hmm. I don't know if there's anything specific about what's in the water here. I think it's just the needs of society are growing and the expectations of everyone is getting higher and higher that everyone wants to deliver better products. I'm pretty sure that there's just as much bad design here in Perth as what there is in Melbourne or Sydney or LA or New York or wherever, right? But percentage-wise, I think it's probably pretty good. So what what about the community though? Because, I mean, I've been to Perth a few times and I've been to a few events and it seems like it's got a really close-knit and tight community. But that's just from an outsider looking in. What's what's it like from from your point of view? Uh, I, I agree. I actually do agree with that. I think I've you know I've been involved in Agda here for for many years, um, and I was on the national board for a couple of years. And I'm not now, but like I I went to our portfolio review day a couple of weeks ago, and it's I think because it's a smaller community, everyone's actually like really happy just to back each other a little bit. And I you know mm. like there's so many other companies that do great work you know and like you mentioned pre you mentioned block and like they did awesome work in last year's agri awards i think they had like mm-hmm. up to 10 finalists. it was like phenomenal right yeah, um, amazing and but they're just a good bunch of guys as well who are you know and girls who are doing great work so i think everyone's quite happy just to kind of support each other it's not a maybe it's not as competitive as other spaces you know but um mm-hmm. yeah it's good to see it is a pretty close-knit community which is nice to, you know it's nice to be part of oh, it's great yeah yeah. We're, we're pretty much at time. I think we've got time for one more question. Prue, do you want to just want to hit the last question? Oh yeah, um, it's it's about your um your playlist. And I note that you um was it Motley Crue and what was the other one? Some Guns hair and metal band. You're kind of into Guns <laughs> and Roses. So this is, are you telling me this is the soundtrack to the fabulous work that you do? Is this the secret <laughs> sauce? Is this what's in the water? <laughs> No, it's truly something a lot more intellectual than that. Um, don't ask my team or my family. But, uh, no, look, I, I've i always played guitar. Like I think I started learning when I was about six years old, right? And it's one of those things that I've always picked up and played for a few years and put it down. Uh, and um, I haven't played in like 20-something years. And I picked up my guitar in COVID, you know, when we all had so much extra time up our sleeve, right? <laughs> And um, yeah. and I re- I've got an old electric guitar and I restrung it and I started playing again and my wife who I love dearly who's going to listen at some point I know right so uh, <laughs> but, um, came yeah. out and she was just like what the hell is this thing and I'm like well, look, you know trust me I know what I'm doing um, and so that's where it came from like I've I've started listening to some good old fashioned music I guess I'll say good old fashioned and old music. <laughs> My my younger nephew, who's like 11, had started learning guitar as well, and he asked me, he said, oh, you know, what kind of things are you playing? I said, oh, 
I'm starting to play a little bit of Guns N' Roses and a little bit of Motley Crue and a little bit of Poison and everyone's probably listening to me right now. <laughs> judgment. Did you, did you play Smoke on the Water? No, I was like, I'll draw the line now, right? But he, um, although it's easy, he looked at me and just went, who? Oh, yeah, and that's how you know when you're old. When you're old. Like, how, do you know who, how do you know who Guns N' Roses are? At least I don't have that tattoo on my arm. Yeah. <laughs> that, that seems like a great place to leave it. Thank you so much for making the time. How can yeah. people find out more? about the studio and you and, and what you guys are doing? Uh, well, check out uh, online, check out our website, thebrandagency.co. That's probably the best thing from a studio perspective. Um, I spend most of my time on LinkedIn, so you can probably find me on LinkedIn. I think most designers probably aren't on LinkedIn as much as what they probably should be, right? But, um, again, that goes back to the first question about how do you talk to clients and the yeah. wider industry. But you can find me on LinkedIn or on Instagram. I am Dan Agostino. And Prue, where can people find out more about you? Well, similarly, I am on LinkedIn a bit, getting very confused about what LinkedIn is becoming. It's it's, it's changing quite a lot. Um, But, yes, also on Instagram. I'm definitely not on Facebook anymore. Instagram, Prudence and Jones. So you can find more about us and more episodes on ozdesignradio.com on pretty much everything. Um, And thank you, Prue. And thank you, Dan. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, guys. It's been great. Thank you.